Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Kent Dobson as he shares on courage in the age of anxiety. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hey everybody, Kent Dobson here. Thanks for having me. It's always a joy, a pleasure to be teaching at Eastlake. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. I want to, I, at least I hope, cover some interesting terrain today about the age that we live in. And um, maybe before I get going, I wanna actually start with a line from the prophet Isaiah. More and more I feel drawn to the prophets and and it's not so much that I mean, the prophets, they're, I think, very misunderstood. Often when we think prophets, we think like people who predict the future, people who stand up for the marginalized, and they certainly do that. And they also criticize the religious and political establishment. But it's not for those reasons. They're, I think the fundamental element of the prophets, I don't think about the Hebrew prophets, but maybe it's just true in the largest sense, is that they've they've had an encounter with the mystery, with the divine. Like Isaiah's lips were burned by a fiery coal in the vision he had. And, and it's like he's seared and changed and altered and he can't help but speak from this new consciousness about, about the world, about the way things are, about the divine, about the mystery. And God, we, where are those voices? That's what I wanna say. Where, where are those voices who have been seared and leveled and um, changed by their experience of the divine, of the mystery, and they're speaking from that place? And um, there's a line that inspires me and, 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 and like touches me in a certain way. And um, anyway, I'll give you the line. He says, the Lord has given me a teacher's tongue. The Lord has given me a teacher's tongue. And the Lord here is like Yahweh, the, this, the ancient God of the Hebrew people who you weren't even allowed to speak the name of. And he, you spoke in code around the name and the God who, who refused to be embodied in an image. And, it's like, you know, peeling back the curtain only, only to, to find emptiness there. And the Hebrew people preserve that, the kind of mystery around the name of God and the image of God. And I think there's something really important in that still for us. Anyway, he says, the Lord has given me a teacher's tongue to know the words that sustain the weary. 
Yeah, maybe that's, that's the best kind of teacher's tongue, <laughs> to know the words that sustain the weary. And I guess it moves me because I feel weary. It's like, I'm just, I'm tired. I'm, and there's something about our, our culture that feels weary and beat down and, um, and afraid and anxious. And so I, I wanted to start with that line because it's kind of like a prayer for me right now. I hear I am teaching and I hope something that I say or something just behind what I say will, will be a word that sustains you in some way, that sustains me. It's like that David White poem, forget the news and the blurred screen and the radio and um, people are hungry. He says, people are hungry, and one good word is bread for a thousand. Yeah, I'm hungry like that. One good word, a word that sustains the weary. And I, and I mean, I think that's partly why we're still, you know, we live in a weird time religiously, like what's happening to the church and the landscape of spirituality in general? It's a confusing time to be alive. And But one of the things that, that, I don't know, keeps us on the path is a kind of hunger, you know, a kind of craving for one good word that can sustain as bread for a thousand and can sustain the weary. And I think that's in part why we need <clears throat> the old ways and the old traditions and the, the echoes of, from our ancestors that are coming down the canyons of time, whispering things in our ears about, about the way things are based on their experience, their taste of the divine, the way that they were altered and still have something to offer to us. Yeah, so I don't know, let those words just hang in the, in the backdrop there. Who knows, let's see Isaiah, that's something like 25, you know, 2,500 years ago, a little more, 2,800 years ago. Yeah, and words are still powerful here. So what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about the age that we live in. And, and lately I've been calling it the age of anxiety. You know, see if, see if you resonate with that. Doesn't it feel like the age of anxiety? Like, be anxious. And, and, and maybe anxiety is like a, a little fire, right, in the center of our culture. And, and, most of our cultural institutions and media outlets and politicians and religious leaders, you know, dump gas on that fire and it, and it flares up and it can consume and burn and dominate our consciousness, the kind of anxiety that, that I'm speaking of. And I think we live in an age like that. And, and I want to talk about, I want to talk about anxiety. Of course, you, you, you're, you probably are asking, what do you mean by anxiety? And I'll, I'll try to give you a at least the way I'm using, and I'll try to define what I mean by that. Um, but almost as soon as I say it, uh, at least even without even defining it, it seems kind of true. Like, yeah, it is an age of anxiety, and and I could give you a litany of reasons to be anxious to to that would enhance the dis-ease that we feel. And I'm not going to inundate you with statistics, but things like depression and, and anxiety and um, social disorders and um, 
mental disorders and suicide and you know climate challenges and I don't like to say change because I'm just sick of hearing the same things all the time. Um, species deaths and um, not to mention war and wars around the world and food shortages and inflation and yeah, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And that sense of dis-ease, of discomfort, makes us hungry for one good word that is bread for a thousand or, or for a teacher's tongue that can sustain the weary. Or Jesus saying something like, my burden, my yoke is light. My burden is light. I can't even think of the phrase. He says, uh, my yoke is easy and... Yeah, that would be nice. Um, in any case, I think, like, like I said, we live in an age of, age of anxiety and it's, it's almost becoming normalized. And I'll tell you something that's kind of dark. I'm, I hear from my own kids who are in school. It's like, on the one hand, um, young people are quite comfortable talking about having therapists or counselors, but it's, it's almost become um, abnormal for a student to not be in counseling or therapy and almost as if it's like a badge of honor and and that's interesting in and of itself and raises some questions i'm not going to deal with here but you know what is happening to our world was happening to our young people and and um there even i i was even reading about a couple weeks ago an article where really young children are experiencing a kind of panic and anxiety around climate change now, where are they getting that, we might want to ask. And, um, and of course, what do we do with all this information and bad news and things like that? So that's what I want to talk about today. And more importantly, I want to talk about courage. I want to talk about courage in the face of this kind of culture. I, I you know, I've been known to throw gasoline on the fires of anxiety too and, and, um, and it's kind of rare, it's becoming rare that you would, would hear people talking about, okay, in the face of all these things, what we need is courage. And that's the, that's the direction I want to go today. I want to talk about the age of anxiety, but I want to talk about being courageous because I also think it's an age that calls for courage. And I mean something specific by that. I'll get to it. And I want to find my own courage. And I want to live in a kind of wholehearted and full way no matter what. And... And that kind of, of teaching, I think, that kind of message, that kind of word um, is often drowned out by all the other urgent things that we should feel anxious about. So, um, yeah, okay, so maybe I want to try to define what I mean by anxiety. And I'm not trying to give you the definitive definition um, but it is important to at least try to define what I mean by it here so that we're more or less on the same page because it's one of those words that's being used a lot. And, uh, and I think sometimes two people will use the same word but mean very different things. And so the way I'm using it here is what I mean by anxiety is a kind of low-level dis-ease with the way things are, a discomfort. I like the word dis-ease. Um, but it doesn't have an obvious cause. 
It's not a causal relationship. This happened, I feel uncomfortable. It's more like the inability to point or name um, the cause. And, or maybe there are multiple causes, like many tributaries feeding into the stream that, that is anxiety and, and the anxiety of our age and our culture. But it's hard to know, you know, individually what those tributaries are. And, you know, it's not, like, it's not like direct fear. Fear is present with anxiety, a very low level fear, but it's not fear of something concrete. That's not what I mean by anxiety. It's like, if you're afraid of bears and, um, and you encounter a bear, then you're afraid of the bear. You know, I, I was fishing once in Alaska with, with a friend and uh, a mother grizzly and her cub came into the water. And, you know, I can, like that is just seared into my, memory. I'll die <laughs> unless I, you know, uh, suffer memory loss, I suppose. But even if that, I think that one might still be right on the edge, right before my, my deathbed, be, right before my death, just because it just was so primal. I was afraid. And, and it's not like the bear and the cub come into the water and they were 10 feet from me. And, and I thought to myself, I'm having an existential crisis about the meaning of life. No, I was just afraid for my life. Very direct, causally related. So it's not like that. Anxiety is more just low level, low level. It's like it, it being in the fog, you know. I guess if I took the same event and I just said I was in a stream and I just had a feeling that there might be a presence nearby, but I couldn't confirm it. That's more like anxiety, I guess. And... I guess it's important to mention that because in that sense, anxiety thrives on ambiguity. And um, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned climate challenges for, you know, climate change. And the thing about climate change, I've done a lot of reading and um, of course I, I care about the, the planet and um, as we all do, I think right and left, we all do, we just, so polarized right now that it feels like it's one or the other and but in any case um one of the the interesting things about just science in general is that there are literally billions of factors involved in talking about what may happen and each one of those possibilities comes in and can change the landscape and the future of possibilities so it's like you know, when the culture, at least some of the culture is, is screaming, be afraid of climate change. This is the end. What do we do with something like that? What are we supposed to be afraid of? Okay, sea level rise. Okay, so don't live on the coast, you know, or, you know, what, what are you supposed to do? And that's one of the things about anxiety. You don't know what to do. You feel low level dis-ease and maybe you can say it's kind of about this, but then it's also about that. And, and um, my main point is the culture uh, feeds it, feeds, feeds the dis-ease we might feel around any particular thing. And that dis-ease is rooted in, in a kind of ambiguity and, um, and that can often be quite deflating. It's like, a, like you have a sailboat and the sail is up but there's no wind. You're like, okay, I'm ready to go but nothing is happening, you don't know what to do. And, it can lead to a kind of slowing down and a deflation. Maybe you feel that, the disease and the deflation and 
that can lead to narcissism really and nihilism and <clears throat> meaninglessness and that's all present in our culture you know if you've probably heard many people saying we're in a crisis of meaning and okay throw that in there now i'm anxious about it the crisis of meaning you know it's just and it stacks up um so yeah maybe maybe i want to say something about the ego at this point so so what happens i think in an age of anxiety where anxiety is now normalized and and almost everything is feeding it is the ego starts to freak out a little bit and um it might begin to say something like um i'm not sure what's important and what i mean by ego is just like the the tip of our consciousness like what we the eye that's present here i'm not sure what's important and the ego like freaks out i'm not sure who to trust anymore i'm not sure who i am those are those are the sort of rising existential questions and can lead to a feeling of being in a boat with the sail up but no wind and um but what's interesting is that that the culture then and i know culture is like a big word uh, it's hard to just blame the culture i guess but um our cultural institutions and voices we could say recognize this kind of anxiety and move in and say okay um we will offer a kind of balm for this low level anxiety and that balm is identity so things feel ambiguous so join a group find an acronym um find a doctrine find a philosophy find a theory find a critical way of looking at things um and all the spiritual stuff find your enneagram number and your myers briggs uh letters and you're an intj and categorization and identification and it does alleviate the anxiety temporarily it's like okay um i don't know how the world works i'm feeling uncertain boom now i know how the world works i can divide the world up and categorize the world and you're over there you believe x i'm over here i'm in in this group and it's a temporary balm and it's also a very attractive balm it's like it's the middle school um experience extended out into adulthood you know middle school is well i was going to say it's a great was a great time i guess it wasn't so great um you're flooded with hormones your body's changing your skin is changing and all of a sudden on the landscape of the middle school playground and building are all kinds of possibilities like i mean i could be into this kind of music or that kind of music or this kind of um clothing or that kind of clothing whatever the groups group identity and they're all popping up and and that's an important part of adolescence it's like we do come to know who we are in part through group identification and um Yeah, and you need to find a group in a sense of the hey, this is my authentic self. I'm I'm authentically into grunge music, you know? And I'm not minimizing that by the way. I think it's a healthy part of psychological development. We do need groups. It's also evolutionary. I mean, we're social creatures and I think if you don't experience belonging like that, a kind of identity that's rooted in belonging at a certain point in your life, you're you'll experience a sort of arrested development. There'll always be a missing hole there and and you'll have to address that and 
So I'm not minimizing the need for groups and group identity, but that's all our culture is screaming at us right now. Be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, and don't worry, we've got a group that has the right perspective on what's actually going on in the world. And it answers all of your questions and a sort of fundamentalism is present in all these various ideologies and um, religions and political persuasions and so forth and so on. And, um, and that's the age that we live in. And, and, and the ego likes that. That's, that's part of my point. It's like, okay, now I know who I am. Hey everyone, it's Kristen. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in. I hope that you're finding these messages helpful for you in your everyday life. Um, that's what we're trying to do here is gather around the idea that life is a gift and love is the point and let's give ourselves ways to move forward in that in our own everyday world. Um, so I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for being a part of this community. To those of you who have participated and given financially, we wanna say thank you to you. Everything that we do here happens because people make contributions. People say, I value this place. I want it to exist for me and for other people. And so I'm going to support it. And so we just want to say how grateful we are um, that you do that. And for those of you who maybe haven't had a chance to contribute yet, um, we would ask you to consider maybe doing so. If you find this place beneficial, if you find these messages helpful for you, then um, consider joining us in that way. You can go to eastlakecc.com to make a contribution. Um, and we just always are thankful for the people who want this place to exist. So thanks again for tuning in. Let's get back to the message. Okay, well, you know, back in the 90s when the internet was first on the rise, people were saying things like, the internet's gonna change your life. And it's gonna, everything's gonna be connected to the internet. And we're sort of like, I don't know if that's really gonna be the case. And turns out, yeah, it's the case. Everything almost in, in, uh, in our contemporary modern world is connected to the internet. And um, <laughs> like the first internet experiences I had were like, you know, it, looking up Pearl Jam lyrics, you know, waiting for them to load. <laughs> Coming down the screen, like what the heck is he saying in yellow Ledbetter? You know, it's on a porch, a letter, something or other. And I was like, oh, okay, the internet, we can find lyrics and, <clears throat> and you have no idea why I told you that, but um, yeah, okay, so it's informing our lives, it's part of our lives, but I don't think any of us saw the algorithm come. And the algorithm is what is now dominating our relationship with, with media and with our phones and with our computers and the way we're plugged into the world. And the algorithm is confirmation bias. That's all it is. It's like, it's, it's collecting absolutely everything you click on and say and mention and you're at a party and you're like, oh, I like your rice cooker the next day, like that's on your Instagram feed. It's a miracle, you know? How did that get there? How did they know who's listening? And, um, but it's the algorithm is just collecting all this stuff on us and then spitting back to us what it thinks we want, what it thinks we might wanna buy, um, but then confirms our biases. Like whatever group we're identifying with, it knows that. And so it's, it's confirming that you're in the right group, don't worry. And that other group over there is definitely in the wrong and it's gonna keep spitting this stuff at you using, I think, the low-level anxiety to keep the thing going. You feel anxious, temporary um, dopamine hit that so-and-so is wrong. 
oh, I'm starting to feel anxious. I don't know what's true anymore. Temporary dopamine hit. Don't worry, you're right. You're in the right group. You've identified. You're using the right language. That kind of stuff. And I don't think, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. I, and I don't think any of us are spiritually and psychologically mature enough to fend this off. I really don't. I'm not. Definitely not. You know, somehow Instagram knows that I am a cyclist. And I don't like to spend a lot of money on cycling gear because it's really expensive. So it's constantly spinning at me advertisements like, sure enough, there's a company that sells affordable cycling kits. And who would have thought? And I, I fall, you know, I fall right into it. I have in my closet stuff I bought off Instagram. As if I'm, you know, meanwhile, I'm pretending to be so spiritual, enlightened, and not sucked in by algorithms and confirmation bias. And no, I, I'm, I'm that mortal, you know, and we're all that mortal and that vulnerable. So it's playing on our vulnerabilities. And so it's difficult um, to use a word I'm going to get to, to find courage here, to courage to, to move differently in the world and um, not be just constantly um, inundated by a world that wants our attention and is demanding our attention, everything that's urgent. Um, yeah, think about the just the the CNN and Fox News and all these places. Like the the visual on the screen is just screaming: "Be afraid! Be anxious! Be afraid! Be anxious! Be afraid!" Be anxious, alert, 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 alert. And meanwhile, down at the bottom of the screen, while they're talking about something else, are a whole brand new list of the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. No wonder after a while we feel kind of nihilistic and I don't even, you know, deflated and, and bored and depressed. Um, nothing lasts, not even the most urgent, Never before, you know, now we have to worry about this issue and that issue and then next week it's something else. So it never stops, is my point. So, back to a sense of identity. So I want to say something like this. The great spiritual teachers have always said something along these lines. I'm, of course, interpreting, but it's something like, yeah, you do need a sense of identity so that you can let it go, so that you can loosen your attachment to it. You do need a group in which you belong, only later to loosen your attachment to that group because you are not the group. And, and your identity is, is not fixed in a category. One of the most beautiful things I, I got from Jung, Carl Jung, is um, he said that the person in front of you, he was like writing advice to analysts, future analysts. And he said, um, the person in front of you is not a statistic. I mean, I almost want to just go around reminding everyone I know that the, everyone they meet on the street is not a statistic. We want them to be a statistic because that kind of label and categorization is, makes life easier. But he says the person in front of you is a mystery. Now, if you've ever had any kind of long-term relationship with someone, you know what he's talking about. That person is a mystery. You're a mystery to yourself for that matter. It's like, okay. All right, categories, they help to a certain extent. Groups can help to a certain, they can, they can, they can sort of say, okay, I, I seem to align with these values, but they're not, they're not who we are on, on, on a deeper level, on a core level. 
know, there's this line from Rilke. He says, if we would only let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, like what a, what a line. If we would only let ourselves be dominated as things do by an immense storm, we would grow strong and not need names. That's why I love, I love poetry. It's sort of, it says what I, what takes me 30 minutes to even get somewhat in the same ballpark here. You know, a poet can just get right to the core, right to the heart of the matter. Yeah, if we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would grow strong and not need names, not need identities. After all, they're here today and tomorrow they're thrown into the fire. That's a line from Jesus. Or um, everything, everything, everything is impermanent. And we need that kind of loosening of a, of a grip. And I think we need that now more than ever. And, and it requires a certain amount of courage to do that. And I think <clears throat> a healthy spirituality helps us both find a sense of identity and purpose and belonging, and also helps us let it go and drops us into even deeper waters. And I think we need to be reminded of that in a, in a, in a culture of anxiety, in an age of anxiety, that's obsessed with categorization and identity and right, left, everything. They're just passing forms in that sense. And I wanna say one more thing just about, about the age of anxiety and, um, you know, back in my day, <laughs> I was about to say back in the 90s, <laughs> back in my day, <clears throat> I don't know, there was something about the 90s vibe. It was like politics, you, know, you sort of roll your eyes and there was a certain amount of distance from it and like, I don't even know who's, you know, who the senator in my state is. By the way, I'm not saying this is, you know, we should go back to this, but that was kind of the vibe I was in and others were in. But now it's like everything is political and politics is, is like the new religion. And, um, and I mean that really in a very straightforward sense. It's become the new religion and, and it's, and, and it's becoming, um, the same kind of religious zeal and fervor that fundamentalists have for their particular sects of religion, their particular niches, that's what we're finding in the political landscape. It's like that kind of fury and attachment and, and defense and blaming and scapegoating. And, and one of the things I think we were kind of not naive about, we, I'll say I was naive about, is I was kind of like maybe more of the John Lennon type that imagine no religion and, and we'll just get along and... But um, it turns out it's more complicated than that because deep in the human psyche, there's something like a religious instinct that also comes from Jung. And, and he means by instinct things like food and sex and shelter and um, primal fear like of the bear. And he puts the religious instinct in there that we have this deep-seated impulse toward the transcendent. And when that's not met by the transcendent, like by, by the divine, by a burning coal that brings us to our knees. Um, it doesn't mean that the religious impulse isn't there. It's still there. It's seeking the transcendent, the ultimate. And what happens is religions and political ideologies and groups, and they come in, I'm not saying they're doing this consciously, but they, it's, it's like they're able to capture that kind of instinct and say, we'll show you the path. 
And so the religious instinct is all over the place in the contemporary landscape of anxiety and the political and cultural wars we find ourselves in. Um, it's interesting that, the, you probably heard this before, but the number one phrase in the Bible when God appears is don't be afraid. You know, who's, who's talking like that? You know, besides, you know, like, like the kind of cliched guru, like it's all light, you know, it's all one. It's just, evil doesn't really exist, you know. That's not what I mean. I mean, do not be afraid is the right phrase because there are things that are, um, are present that activate our fears. They're real things. There are real reasons to feel low-level anxiety and real reasons to feel afraid. And that's why we have to be reminded, do not be afraid as a posture, as a courageous posture in the world. Um, so that's my setup for a few things that I wanna say now about courage. And a lot of what I'm about to say, I was inspired by, by David White, the, the poet and essayist and I think he lives in, well, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you're part of the world. And um, He has a little book called Consolations where he writes on uh, everyday words. And there's a little essay in there about courage. And, and one of the things he says about it is that it comes from a French word, which means heart. And just right away, try to hold that as an image in your mind. What does it mean to be a courageous person? It's to be a person of heart, to, you know, to live from this space, a kind of vulnerable space of, of feeling the world as it is, not, not sealing ourselves off from the world, but living courageously with a sort of openness, a sort of open-heartedness, or, or what he calls um, wholeheartedness. He tells this lovely story. I don't know if it's in that book, but he says that uh, when he was young, he was uh, working for a nonprofit, and like all nonprofits, they they think they're up to saving the world, and and good for them. I mean, uh, good, good, worthy, worthwhile effort to to lend a hand and and to try to make a difference. I'm not putting down nonprofits. I work for one myself, and um, uh, but oftentimes the world doesn't want to be saved, you know. So it leads to a lot of deflation and you feel demoralized at times and anxious and and like the work is never done and and he comes home one day from work and he remembers that a, a benedictine monk is coming to visit that night and he blurts out something to him um he says speak to me about um what does he say speak to me about exhaustion that's what he says and uh the Benedictine monk, his friend, says something very powerful. He says, the antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. The antidote to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. And, and I'm just going to change that just a little bit. The antidote to the age of anxiety, to our own anxiety, um, isn't, you know, rest, or I might add other things, or numbing ourselves from this, or not paying attention, or um, drugs, you know. The antidote uh, 
to exhaustion is not necessarily rest. He says the antidote is wholeheartedness. Wholehearted, heartfelt, vulnerable, living in the world, living from that kind of space. Really, what are my values? What do I love? What am I for? That's wholeheartedness. I mean, I'm, I'm really, honestly, I'm speaking to myself. I, I have made many podcasts and teachings and talks and books and whatever conversations that have really been about what am I against? And, and I guess there's a time for that. There's a time to say I'm definitely not that, but it runs its course and it keeps us locked into an us versus them world. It's a better question to ask, what am I for? And that requires some vulnerable, wholehearted, courageous living. And he says to David White, after he tells him that the antidote is wholeheartedness, he says, um, you know, you feel depressed because you're not living wholeheartedly in the work that you're having and your real work is poetry. And it changed his life, you know. It changed his life by simply identifying what was his, how he was already deeply oriented in the world. That's the power of it. He's already, he was already deeply oriented in the world in this way, and, and he just has to live from that kind of vulnerable place. And so what I'd like to suggest is, is something like, we need more courage. Okay, there's a lot of bad news. There's a lot of things to feel discouraged about. There's a lot of anxiety and depression and PTSD, and, and I agree with all of that. And I'm asking, you and me and spiritual communities in general and churches and how are we going to live courageously toward these things? What are we for? It's like, you know, here, here are questions that come out of this. What is the conversation that you really ought to be having? What do you really care about? What are you ultimately for? What do you love? And that, that, is a kind of, that's a vulnerable place to show up and say, I care about these things because I love these things. I, there's something here I love and that needs to be preserved or protected or something like that. So I wanna, you know, what if you turned your phone off for a month or a year and nobody told you what was urgent? Nobody, nobody told you what the next urgent thing was. Well. What could you live wholeheartedly? What would come out from your own inner landscape, your, your own inner landscape of feeling? What, what do you care about? What wounds are you carrying that have touched you in a certain way? And, and, and from that kind of wounded place, you've developed a certain kind of empathy, a, a certain kind of compassion toward, toward the world and toward, toward people who have experienced something similar. I don't know. What would come out of your own, um, the landscape of your own heart? Well, in an age of anxiety, which is absolutely flooded with gasoline constantly on the fire, it's pretty hard to, to feel that. So I want to read to you straight from David White, kind of as some closing thoughts here. Courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life. It's saying be involved, participate in life. Courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life, with another, with a community, a work, a future. To be courageous is not necessarily to go anywhere or do anything except to make conscious those things we already feel deeply and then to live through them. 
or live through the unending vulnerabilities of those consequences. That's quite a sentence. To be courageous is not necessarily to go anywhere or do anything except to make conscious those things we already feel deeply and then to live through the unending vulnerabilities of those consequences. Because when you put your heart out there, it's, it's kind of vulnerable. It's much easier to stay self-protected and to tweet away and to scapegoat and to point fingers. To be courageous is to stay close to the way we are made. And that's what I hope you hear. I want, I wish upon you more heartfelt courage, more, more trust in the way you are made on, on the heart level without too many voices or people or institutions or ideologies telling you exactly the things that you need to care about and be concerned about. And I think we learn about this kind of slowly. It's one of the troubles with the spiritual life. It's slower than we think. It's my very first spiritual director, a nun, used to say, the work of God is like a drip on the sponge. And I was like, ah, I don't really want that. I want a flood, you know. I just sort of say, well, it's just, if that happens, all right, then it goes away. But it's that ongoing, subtle work, the drip on the sponge. And that's kind of what courage is like. It's like, you don't have to go anywhere or do anything, but but be more in touch with what are my values and what am I for and what can I live wholeheartedly in the world? And, um, and that might show up in simple ways like just being a parent. That's anything but simple, those of you who know, who are parents. Very challenging, but it's ordinary. Yeah, we. What can we live wholeheartedly as a parent or a grandparent or as a neighbor for that matter, or a friend or a spouse? Um, and, and I think by living in this way, in this kind of wholehearted way, we find out that we don't actually need the names. We don't need the identities that everyone is promising. will serve us up a, a diet of meaning. And anyone can live like this. That's probably the most important. Thing. And anyone can stay close to the way they are shaped. To, what does he say? To be courageous is to stay close to the way we are made. I'll end with that. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.